Well, good morning and welcome to this first Sunday of Lent. And we continue with our series, Full to the Brim, that began on Ash Wednesday. As we prepare to read God's Word together this morning, we first begin by asking God to illuminate our hearts and our minds with His grace, that we might hear what God has to say to each of us today. Let us pray. God of the wilderness places in our lives, it can be hard to hear you in the desert. It can be hard to hear you in the city, in the midst of our calendar reminders, rush hour traffic and notification alerts. It can be hard to hear you, so we ask, make everything quiet. Pause the chaos. Still the rushing. Ease our racing thoughts. Give us ears to hear your word for us today, which promises that even in the desert, you are full to the brim. We are listening. We ache for your good news. Gratefully, we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Luke in the fourth chapter. We begin with verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority. For it has been given over to me, and I give it to you, anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will, command and his angel, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This past week, our daughter Catherine moved in Virginia Beach, and, and Carolyn and I were just so graciously invited to go down and help her. You've had that kind of invitation before, I guess, as well. It was uh, quite a workout. 
But we made it home in one piece, even though I would like to have known how many steps I climbed. But on the way back to Northern Virginia, I was listening to Caleb. Maybe you know that radio station throughout the country, a Christian radio station. And the DJ began to talk about a human resource practice in some other countries in which an employee is allowed to bring a support person along whenever an employee has a meeting with a representative from the human relations department for the company they work. Have you heard of this before? I hadn't. I did some research and discovered that when a meeting is for a performance review or is disciplinary or a termination meeting or you are involved in a workplace investigation as a complainant or as a respondent or even as a witness, a support person can accompany you to this meeting. In simple terms, a support person is there to provide moral and emotional support for the employee. That support person could be a colleague, a union representative, a lawyer, a family member, a friend, and hopefully your pastor could be invited as well. Your support person is not there to engage too much in the meeting, however, by answering questions or speaking on your behalf or disrupting the meeting. Rather, the role is to act as a semi-silent supportive bystander who can offer advice to the employee throughout the meeting or even take notes. If you had such a meeting, who would you invite as your support person? In 2019, in New Zealand, an advertising agency was downsizing and an employee was invited to a redundancy meeting. Knowing that he was probably going to get fired, the employee, to lighten the mood, invited an unusual support person. His support person came dressed in a blue fuzzy wig, big red nose, a novelty-sized hat, and big, big shoes, and lots and lots of balloons. And during the meeting, Joe the Clown allegedly blew up balloons and folded them into a series of animal shapes. In addition, the clown mimed crying when the separation papers were given to the employee. Annoying? Oh yeah, for sure. Strange? Certainly a bit unorthodox. Noisy? Well, with all those balloons, no doubt. But in spite of the noise from making the balloon animals, Joe, the support clown, was not disruptive enough that he was asked to leave. If you were allowed to bring a support person to a meeting, would you bring a support clown? Our lesson today from Luke's gospel is one of three of the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke but not John, that all agree that Jesus experienced a period of temptation following his baptism by John in the Jordan River. All three of the synoptic gospels give us similar versions of the incident, even though Mark's version is much, much shorter, only two verses. But Luke begins his telling by writing, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, 
returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when, he, when they were over, he was famished. Luke's reference to Jesus' 40 days of temptation would surely ring a chord with a Jewish audience. Jesus' 40 days are like Moses' 40 days spent on Mount Sinai, or Elijah's 40 days, this 40-day journey to Mount Horeb, or even the 40-year journey of the Israelites in the wilderness. Jesus had already, or excuse me, Luke had already tied Jesus to the long history of Israel by carefully, carefully reciting Jesus' entire lineage. And now, you see, Luke ties Jesus' 40-day experience in exile to the spiritual lineage of Israel's great religious leaders. Luke envisions a, a cooperative existence, right, as, as he records that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit was Jesus' support person, right? Yes. Yet while G Luke's rendition of Jesus' experience in, implies that he enjoyed the support of the Holy Spirit, it in no way lessens the force or the fervor of the ensuing temptations as he ate nothing in all those days and when they were over, he was famished. Satan's three attempts at seduction are extraordinarily powerful and ensnarling. Jesus' ministry hadn't really even begun. He'd just been baptized. His first days were ahead of him. The path before him was wide open and untangled, wasn't it? I can still clearly remember Carolyn and I dropping our son Michael off at college, just like it was yesterday. After unloading all of, the, all of his gear and, and moving them up to the fourth floor and and making his bed and fixing up his room and then going to lunch, Michael was so ready to get rid of us. We gave him those last hugs and we sent him off, like so many other previous first days in his life, wondering how our child would do with all the choices that he would make. Would he fit in with the right group or would he fall into the wrong crowd? I'm sure you know about first days, whether you've experienced them or your child has experienced them, whether it's kindergarten or first grade, middle school, yes, even college. But the same choices, you see, confronted Jesus after he left his familiar, protective life as a, a simple carpenter's son. And he embarked upon this new role as Messiah, God's anointed one. What kind of persona could, should, or, or would Jesus take on in his first real test? And the devil literally 
hits Jesus in the gut with the very first temptation. Not surprisingly, Jesus' truly human nature experienced ravenous hunger after his 40 days, his 40-day fast. But Jesus was not actually starving. This was a self-imposed hunger, willingly endured for religious purposes. Long fasts have always been a popular means of bringing oneself closer to God. It's still a, a discipline in our own time, even though we really don't talk about it very much. Thus, the devil's taunt was not to a man whose suffering was a result of famine or poverty or cruelty. Eating, at this point, was not a matter of life or death for Jesus. It was more like the temptation that that unguarded cupcake represents to a struggling dieter or a bag of chocolate kisses in the church office represents to this pastor who is a little way too many hours past lunchtime. And let me tell you, those kisses, for some reason, are still in the office this morning. The issue is not, though, survival, is it? The issue is willpower and a sense of purpose. The devil is advocating a if-it-feels-good-do-it kind of philosophy that celebrates petty indulgences. But Jesus, praise the Lord, isn't biting. In Luke's version of the second temptation, the tempter alters time in an instant, Luke tells us, in order to take Jesus on a tour of all the world's riches. The tempter shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. It just might make one wonder if this being who is so easily manipulated time and matter is indeed worthy of worship and the worship that he seeks. But Jesus faces this dual temptation of personal power and denying God in his second trial. And unlike the first temptation and the last temptation in Luke, this tempter does not ask Jesus to perform an activity in order to flaunt his identity. Here, the tempter offers a seductive gift, a gift, but only if he will give up his identity and acknowledge the tempter's preeminence. The tempter says, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. The temptation to political power must have been surely enticing to the one who possesses such a clear sense of righteousness and justice as did Jesus. How compassionately, compassionately and judiciously Jesus would have welded authority in this unlimited world authority that the devil was offering. And Jesus might have momentarily believed the myopia of his own vision of a better world as compared to that of God's all-encompassing all -encompassing vision that included the salvation of all creation. But the devil goes too far. 
when he demanded that the price of this authority was to deny God and to worship him. And Jesus' scriptural response, worship the Lord your God and serve only him has nothing to do with the power that had been offered. It deals only with the much too high price the devil seeks to extract. In Luke's gospel, Jerusalem and the temple are always moving on to the center of stage. And so it's also so fitting that Jesus' climatic confrontation with the tempter takes place at the pinnacle of that holy place in that holy city. In Luke's gospel, Jesus will not get back to the city until the time destined for his, his crucifixion. And the de devil dares Jesus to deny his humanity and his accompanying mortality and to allow the divine nature to reign, to reign and reign and reign in his life. If Jesus descended from the top of the temple as some sort of swooping superman, the devil envisions that all would see it and all would come out and worship him. But of course, of course, the whole point of the incarnation, God coming in the flesh and Jesus Christ would have all been lost. Jesus' full participation in human life is what ultimately becomes your salvation and mine. Even in the desert, Jesus expands our definition for a full life. It's not the life that the tempter presents, a life destined by excess power and control and reign. Jesus sees beyond this facade and he says, even in the midst of fasting, one does not live by bread alone. Excess is not abundance in the life that we have with our God. There is more to this life than we are, that we are called to live than to the amass, simply amass things. There's a fuller life that we're called to live for all of us. Yes, all of us who are made in the image of God. Even in the midst of struggle and oppressive forces and hardship and grief, you see, we have a support person. Someone that will always be with us. That will never leave us. Our support person is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's always with us. And in Jesus, God calls you and me even in the desert to the riverside to be washed by the waters of grace and to live in the refreshing presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus. You and I are called to accept God's mercy and love and God's efforts on our behalf as an unmerited gift. Unmerited, unconditional, unmerited. We may be tempted to think that there is always something that we've done or could do in order to merit this grace that God gives us, even as Jesus was tempted by the devil to act out his powers. But Jesus showed us 
our only possible positive course of action is to assume a completely trusting and thankful attitude before our God and to accept God's salvation by believing and confessing our belief in God's amazing unconditional love for all of us. In Jesus Christ, we see the image of God that's not armed with lightning bolts, but with a basin and a towel. Who spewed not threats, but good news for all. Who rode not a war horse, but a humble donkey. And wept in compassion for people who did not know the way of peace. During his 40 days in the desert, Jesus had made a set of choices. And they can become habits for you and me also. They can change our lives for the better. What Jesus is asking us to do is to, to serve God ahead of ourselves. To put God's interest ahead of our own successes and discover a more expansive life awaiting us. Awaiting all of us. Even in the desert. Even in those difficult places of our lives, in the deserts, we can discover that the life that God has for us can only be found in Jesus Christ. Amen.